0: Hi, I'm Steve Shu.
1: I'm Corey Washington.
0: Welcome to Manifold. Apologies for the audio in today's episode. Corey and I are locked down in our homes because of the coronavirus. We're not in our usual studio, and so the audio may not be up to uh, its usual standards. But I hope you enjoy the episode. OK, Corey, our guest today is Dan Gable, a world-famous wrestler, and also coach of wrestlers. He grew up in Waterloo, Iowa. He was a three-time high school champ at Waterloo West. He was a two-time NCAA champ wrestling for Iowa State University, which is where I was born and my father was a professor. He has an incredibly storied career. He came within one match of being completely undefeated throughout his high school and college wrestling careers losing only his last match in the NCAA Championships to a younger wrestler named Larry Owings of the University of Washington. And I'd like to get into that a little bit when we, when we talk to Dan about his life story. But then he bounced back from that and he won the World Championships in 1971. He won the Olympic gold medal in 72, I believe that was in Munich. And in that tournament, he won all six of his matches without giving up a point. So he's, he's legendary as an athlete. But then he became a coach. And from 76 to 97, he was the head wrestling coach of the University of Iowa, Hawkeyes. Now, I don't know how the Iowa State University Cyclones fans like myself ever forgave him for that. But we're still proud of him because it's still Iowa. Uh, he coached 152 All-Americans, 45 national champions, 106 Big Ten champions, 12 Olympians, including eight medalists. His teams won 21 Big Ten Conference championships and 15 NCAA titles. He coached freestyle wrestling. Uh, he was a head coach for the United States in three Olympic teams and for three Olympic teams and six World teams. So, uh, as you can imagine, it's a thrill for me because I've been aware of Dan Gable since I was a kid growing up in Ames. It's a thrill for me to have him here on our show. So, uh, Dan, I'd like to start with you know I hope this is not a super painful memory for you, but the, the last match of your college career. And I just watched a documentary film that was made by some Iowa State students during that last year of your college wrestling career. I'd never seen this film before. It's an incredibly high, color, high quality color documentary about that season and culminating in the final match. And so uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and so I'd like to talk to you about that last match with Larry Owings. Um, one of the things that, that I noticed watching the match is how serious Owings was in the victory. When he finally was declared the winner, he, he reached out very seriously and shook your hand. There was not a hint of celebration. Even when his coach hugs him later, there's not even a hint of celebration. I, I sort of got the feeling watching the video that he understood the enormity of what he had accomplished. Um, Am I right in that interpretation, or maybe just people were more serious back then? Dan Gable here, he was a humble guy right there
2: at that moment. As I listened to him over the years, I don't think he realized what he actually did at that moment, even though that was his goal and he kept it quiet all year. Because uh, he was in my weight class the year before, didn't get to me, and I, I didn't even know who he was basically, even though i had wrestled him once before. But he kind of kept it to himself and he worked just all year to want to beat me in the uh, the national finals, I guess. So he was he was right on on par. But the reason why I say I don't think he realizes because he told me when he got back home, he just his life had changed. And he was only a sophomore. And by that, he didn't really know how to handle his life uh, because he was always this certain way. And it was different now. It was such a change. Uh, Wide world of sport featured him the next weekend. And, uh, you know, it was just one of these things that he says, actually, that match cost him what he really wanted overall was to be a world and Olympic champion as well. And he actually never won another national title, even though he was in the finals twice, he got beat twice. And he actually says that, I don't know if he was married at that time or got married shortly after or whatever, but he said it, he he felt like it cost him his marriage. He just did not know how to handle the fame, uh, which I think in, in an area where he was from University of Washington, Uh, You know, it was a big deal out there, but wasn't like he was living in Iowa in the Midwest where we were winning national team titles and all that kind of thing. Just a kid from the University of Washington, Oregon State, the state of Oregon, uh, all of a sudden upsetting, upsetting the kid and and winning and not really knowing how to handle it. He he actually said if he had to do it all over again, he probably wouldn't want to win that match, which is amazing. And you know what's surprising about me? I needed to lose that match because I took for granted I was just going to win. And my coaches took for granted that I was going to win. My focus really had peaked about a month earlier when I had actually set a goal to go up a weight and beat the defending champion up a weight. And then I did that. And then after that, I was kind of like anticlimactic, but yet I was doing more interviews. I wasn't even a kid that could really talk a lot. that time and i was pretty focused but i actually had my goals and my focus incorrect and i was doing a lot of interviews i mean i'm interviewing you with you right now now if i have the national tournament this week or tomorrow or my matches in five minutes would i want to be doing this well the coaches had a lot of confidence in me i guess i had a lot of confidence but no, you don't do that. So I was interviewing with Wide World of Sports. And all of a sudden, I finally got my 22 takes down. By that, I'm saying it took me two twenty-two times to say really simple. Hi, I'm Dan Gable. Come watch me next week as I finish my career 182-0. And I was 181-0. And so, uh, you know... I really couldn't say that very well. So they finally wrote it out, and I, I got it done, Very not very good. But then all of a sudden I turned, and I, I'm usually a guy that folks, after weigh-ins, I had a regiment, it was about a five-hour period where you'd go eat, rest for a couple hours, and you start getting ready for your match. And I I needed all that time, and I obviously wasn't use it because when I got done with that 20-second take, I turned, and I was up next. and. What I really noticed was when I stepped on the mat and we got into a flurry right away. I think I ended up making a shot. And I come up to a bear hug and, and and I was trying a bear hug and all of a sudden we went out of bounds. And all of a sudden I I, I remember thinking, "Wow, I'm tired." And I, I never noticed that before. I'm sure I was in match in a match tired not that early. Well, I didn't warm up, and that's science right there because. We're dealing with science because you guys are a science guy. And so wrestling, there's a lot of science in wrestling. And if you don't do warm-ups and you take your heart rate from 70 to 180 in a matter of 30 seconds, you're going to get zapped real quick. And that's kind of what happened. So there's a lot of things that happened. But really what it did for me was it made me realize that you, got, you can't take for granted anything. you got to go about things in the right way. you got to peak correctly. you got to warm up properly. And you got to do what you got to do individually to make sure you have your best performance. So what I did was actually analyze 365 days previously, went through every day, because I always keep these logs. And uh, there was a lot of things that I wasn't doing exactly the way I should have done it. But more than that, it taught me for the future for becoming a world and Olympic champion. And I'll tell you what, my performance, because I started focusing on science, I'm I'm emphasizing that, and that means the art of the fight. That means the skills, the techniques, the strategies. Instead of just being a tough guy, I actually gained so much knowledge and got so much better in one year. Probably as much as I had gained in in the seven years before that, I got that much better in one year just because I started becoming a little bit more Uh, of of a student of the sport and most people thought I was really good already but I had a lot to learn yet and it basically really took me to that next level so yeah I needed that loss.
1: I'm just curious about your competitor you you, you clearly stayed in touch with him later on did he explain to you how he went about trying to beat you did he study you look for your weaknesses?
2: (laughs) Well you're actually kind of right he did study me, yeah, and I didn't even realize I had wrestled him years before that like four years before that in a match I beat him I think by beating by like maybe nine points but but you know then the year before he was in the weight class at the national tournament he didn't get to me didn't place and but he was a very good wrestler uh but he had he had one goal that year and that was to beat me uh and he actually i had i did these top holds. I got a lot, I got people down a lot. And I was, I arm barred. It's called a double arm bar, double chicken wing. And I pinned a lot of guys in a row. I pinned 34 people in a row once in, on, in college, but it was like double arm bars. You get them when they're down, you get their arms behind their back. And when I, I got that on him, I mean, I had, I was on top of him almost five minutes of the eight minute match at that time. So you, you think you would win if you're on top of somebody, five of the eight minutes, but I never scored on top. And I would, that's where I was good at, on top of people scoring and turning, putting them on their back, getting a lot of falls and getting a lot of back points. Well, all the time that I was on top of in putting near five minutes, I never scored a back point, but I did get a, two points for what's called writing time. Now you can only get one point, but, uh, you're not supposed to really ride. You're supposed to pin. And, and I was actually going for the pin with these double chicken wings. And every time I would get him almost way over, he would, he would loose arm out. He was really flexible. And I wasn't scientifically good enough with the arm bars yet. And I went back after that and worked on those arm bars and got scientifically good enough to be able to, when somebody went to I almost double joint their shoulders out of place, that I knew what to do. And so, yeah, he um, he was ready for for and he he beat me because he was able to escape two or three times when I had him down and I was double arm barring him, and he got out for an escape. Plus the fact that, you know, I was tired the whole match, even though and I had to talk myself into wrestling every I like would go out of bounds, maybe between that out of bounds and the start of the whistle again, I would talk to myself. I would just say, hey, come on, I gotta get going. I'm, I know I'm tired. I know I'm behind a little bit. So I actually was really helping myself get back in the match, but normally you don't do that. You know, if you're tired, you don't even know it if you're focused and, and you don't talk to yourself, you know, you just wrestle hard. But I was, um, there was too many things going on for me to, to uh, guarantee I was gonna win, even though it was, came right down to the, I was, he got ahead. Then I got ahead and I was ahead right till about 20 seconds to go. And he got a big move on me. And again, it was a controversial move, whether it was a points or not points, but that's the way it is in life. You know I mean? Either you get calls, you don't get calls. And uh, the bottom line is uh, it made me go back and become a better coach, a better athlete. And uh, I thank him for that. But at the same time, it's been a lot of pain in my life, but it also brought a lot of joy because I got to go to a higher level and and uh,
0: actually excel at that level. I, I want to encourage our listeners uh, because this this uh, historic match is available on YouTube. You can find it in you know one second for with one search, and it's it's really a very dramatic uh, uh, competition. And in fact. Um, I think there's a call there, a near fall two points that is right. pretty controversial that, you know, could have, the, the match could have actually gone your way had it been called slightly differently. But I could tell you were gassed, especially in that final period. You looked really gassed. And, I was uh, gassed I was so the whole sad, match.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. I was gassed the whole match. I remember. But, but, but I talked my way through it. So you, even though I was gassed in 30 seconds, still had another 7.30 to go. And by the way, if, if I d- didn't get that call... See the call was whether he had, well, there's two things, whether he had a takedown and then whether he had a takedown plus back points. So he got both the takedown and the back points. The only way I would have beat him in overtime had if I would have if he wouldn't have got the takedown and the back points, that means four points. I could have won that match right at the end. If it went overtime, I, I think he would beat me. I hate to tell you because he he had the momentum. He was not tired, or he was tired but he wasn't thinking about it. And I was, that's all I was thinking about is, man, I got to get through this match. I got to get through this match. You know, that's just not what you do in a sport. I can remember coming off a match or two in my college career, where as soon as it was over and they raised my hand, all of a sudden, I almost like ready to collapse and I could barely walk to the the corner. And then all of a sudden I was walking to go get a drink and I I was wobbling. But you know what? I, not during the match. That's because, you know, you focus on what you have to get done, and you rest after. And that's kind of, uh, it's kind of like going. what's going on right now. I mean, we need some, we need some, some scientists. We need some scientists in the world right now that's going to help us out. That's, and, uh, you know, maybe they won't get as much sleep, may, but they have to be focused. And uh, it's, there's no difference. Uh, if you want to, um, you know, I'm really surprised that something's that crazy in the world that we can't just find out a lot of things about it. That's unbelievable. And I guess that's what happens in life.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a, people are working very hard, but uh, this is a difficult, uh, with coronavirus, very difficult How do you know they're working real hard? Uh, I know some of them. (laughs) Okay. I love that.
2: See, I need some confidence.
0: Yeah. No, people are working very hard, even on, there's a whole range of things ranging from how to disinfect and reuse masks to how to take blood from people who already had the disease and recovered and transfer it to people to help them recover. There's a lot of research going on, but you know, with humans, it's always the case that you have to be pretty confident before you try something uh, right. with a large population of people. Now,
2: so if you got it right now and and you got rid of it,
0: can you get it again? It's still unknown. There seem okay. to be a few documented cases of that actually happening, but it could be that people got it again because their overall immune system was weak because they had just recovered. It's not clear what's going to be the case in the long run. Right. It's, it's, it's unbeknownst. Yeah, it's a bit of science. Yeah, um, you know when
2: I lost that match. But when I lost that match, I pretty much made up my mind what what would happen. You know what happened, and I went about it, and I was going to make sure it didn't happen again. And that's basically uh, uh, what we're looking for now, I guess, in science. Yeah. So
0: you know, I think people who know you, Dan, they they think of you as a very analytical person who's you know studying the science or the technique or or how it is that people can improve. When I was researching a little bit for this interview, I, I, I came across something which I had been unaware of, which is the tragedy of your sister being killed when you were 15. And I apologize if this is a painful thing that uh, you don't want to discuss. We can just uh, skip uh, no, it. I can. That's part of my life. So I was kind of amazed. There's a little anecdote which I heard, I think you say, that you were at that time, you know, your parents were fighting, and it was a very difficult time after your sister had been killed in your house. And you took it in your own hands to try to stabilize the situation between your parents by moving from your own room, I believe, into the room where your sister was killed. Is, is, is that right? And you slept there to kind of help your parents get past the whole situation. So you're already trying to do things to help other people at that age. Am I, am I right about that story? You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I don't know
2: how I was able to actually get to that level of thinking, but there was a point in time there where I probably could have prevented that murder just because I was tipped off and didn't communicate. I was a neighbor and he said something to me and I just did not, I started to go in and say something to my sister and then I, she changed the subject and I said, ah, it's just boy talk. But you know, it's, it, it, it it's something that, helped me in my life believe it or not uh be able to communicate a lot to a lot and to, to a lot of people uh I just knew that my mom and dad growing up they were great parents but they weren't the perfect from a standpoint of there was a lot of beer drinking going on a lot of hell raising and fighting and all of a sudden you know once my sister was murdered there it was just that much worse and so I had been through the YMCA when I was four and stayed there through, I was about 14, had some pretty good home life learning, had great coaches. And all of a sudden, when I, you know, when I had a chance to step up to keep my family together, because that was when I was 15 and that was in 1964. And they, uh, they lived the rest of their life together until they died together in the late 1900s. And, you know, like, so it was, um, another 35 years they stayed together. I thought when I was going to leave home to go to college at Iowa state. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to stay local at UNI was because I thought maybe I could be around more to help keep them together. But actually when I left, they found themselves a little bit more and it really, it really uh, pieced piece them together. But my wrestling was their entertainment. And then my coaching was their entertainment. And that always helps. And a family needs some of that piecemeal. And and if you can do it, uh, and make and and look at all look, look what it's done for me in my life. I mean, almost went undefeated as a wrestler and won a lot of championships, won the Olympic Games, won the world championships, won 15 national titles as a coach, 21 straight Big Ten titles. When I was at Iowa State, uh, you know, I had great times, and, and uh, you know, now they get four years eligibility. Well, not everybody, because this year we got, it, we got it cut, but we only had three years eligibility back in those years, and so I had those three years, and then I was uh, uh, moved to the University of Iowa. Now, one of the reasons why people, people didn't think I was going to be that good a coach. Some people that knew me,
1: so coach, before you stop, I just want to interrupt because I think this is a really a serious question that I think many people might have. Many great athletes are terrible coaches. And I think almost everyone listening to this program is gonna ask or wonder, what do you think was different about you that allowed you having been a very successful athlete to go on a coach? I think the assumption is that really good athletes just don't understand people aren't as naturally endowed or as driven. It's, it's why many people think of Michael Jordan as having been a terrible basketball coach. And so in your answer, I just hope you could kind of address that because I think everyone's thinking about that, right? How do you put yourself in the shoes of someone who's not as driven as you and not as intrinsically as talented as you to bring them along? Because it, it applies in almost every walk of life from someone who's say good at math was a kid who's not very good at math um, to try to bring them along.
2: That's a good question. I think a lot has to do with just where I started in my life and just where I was growing up. And you know, if I was, if I didn't get it at home, I got it at the YMCA. And if I didn't get it at the YMCA, I'd get it in Cub Scouts. You know, if I didn't get it there, I'd get it in T-shirts, baseball. You know, just being around. Uh, and then my math teacher helped me become a a good student. You know, so. know it's one of these things that all of a sudden when i all of a sudden became an athlete on a team i was always doing something that would the other people would kind of uh look at him you know he's staying extra he's staying late you know I, i think i began my coaching career very early just because of the dedication and the discipline, and then when my sister was murdered, that even added to it, to where I really even became more dedicated, and 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 not just did it in her honor, but also did it to save my mom and dad. I thought at the time, you know, they might have made it together, but who knows? But I guarantee it, it helped them uh, just by having a a person that was in their family and the only uh, sibling that they had uh, at that time to follow them all the way. For years through high school through college but the thing about it is even now and this is one of the reasons why i i, I get a lot of good performances out of people i mean I, my wife she's unbelievable and why, why do i get a good performance out of her well you know i it doesn't matter to me if, if, the, if there's a team and there's 30 athletes on that team and there's two really good ones, three really good ones. You know, I might be working on the guy that's the worst wrestler on the team. And and and, and that was as an athlete. And then as a coach, I did the same thing. So it, it it was really that a lot of people kind of looked up to me. And one of the things that I could get away with was actually – have that respect and the reason why i could have that respect believe it or not is because i was so successful and that really makes a difference on how you can approach people even though people may like you they're still not going to maybe do like you unless you're really doing something that's unique you know so for you know to have Instead of one workout a day, maybe two workouts a day or three workouts a day are or, or coming early in the morning to, uh, to uh, go before school and, and get the training session in. And, you know, people didn't really know me. They didn't know how good I was going to be or if I was not even that good yet, but I was all of a sudden going to start winning. They didn't really follow me that close, the teammates. But all of a sudden when I started being successful – started staying after practice, started coming early, started uh, coming in the mornings. The the, uh, wrestling coach, a famous wrestling coach, Bob Siddons, actually gave me a key to the gymnasium because I was going to open up the the gym every morning. And so all of a sudden, when I made the team as a youngster and I started winning and I was 8-0, then all of a sudden people started following me from a standpoint of the other teammates. But I had, I think that you had to prove that it was worth it. Because when you do that extra work, and if, you, if it's not, you don't see success, you're not going to see a lot of followers. But uh, there's still a lot to be said about just doing that extra work, but it's always nice to, to back it
0: up. Dan, I wanted to ask you a question about your coaching days. And, and the question is uh, regards uh, two different things. One is talent identification. So figuring out which high school kids are the ones that you really want to bring onto the, say, the Hawkeye squad. And then secondly, once you get them there, how you develop them as athletes. And it seems like you have uh, extra uh, insights in both areas, but maybe you could distinguish between those two things, like figuring out which kids are going to be successful and then making them successful once they get in the room. That's good questions. I think at the beginning,
2: you know, you just, you gotta have some examples. And to be honest with you, when I came to the University of Iowa, from Iowa State, and I came from Iowa State at, from, through West Waterloo High School. I mean, we have a we had championship teams in that West Waterloo High School team, and a lot of good athletes. But a lot of them didn't go on after that just because of what they had goals in their life. But but then at Iowa State, uh, we had a lot of really good focused athletes around there. And uh, you know, I I I I think when I first became a coach. I tried to find one example in the room. And when I first became a coach, because when I was a graduate assistant at Iowa State, there was already a lot of examples. But when I went to the University of Iowa, there really wasn't, it was they were pretty good. You know, maybe they were top 15. And that's not so good for me, but, <laughs> but, all of a sudden I realized the only people that were really listening to me were the new people that we brought in that year. And the new people knew that I was coming. And so the new people had a higher set of standards towards what they were going to have to do. And so the people that were already there, the second year guys, third year guys, fourth year guys, and fifth year guys, really wasn't listening to me or really wasn't buying into harder work, uh, smarter work, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, it was hard to, to get them to, uh, to get on board, but it was easier to do it with the new people. And that's where we first, uh, 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 you know, that's where I focused. Now the head coach at the time when I was an assistant said we would, we have a five-year plan. And I looked at him like, Whoa, uh, this team here is going to win the nationals this year. Because I could see all the talent that was not being used at the upper level. And then I saw the attitude. So you got to start somewhere. And I think it's the attitude. If you don't really have it, you got to start with the attitude. But I actually learned something from that coach because we didn't win it that year because I didn't realize that it's going to take a while to change culture. I didn't know that. I had those freshmen, but then the other guys, it took a while. And I was really surprised when all of a sudden, about the fourth day into practice, one one of the uh, official people that were run, ran the building came into our wrestling room and said, "Hey, coach, I got to talk to your team for a second." He says, "We have a uh, a gas leak, and we have to. I have to tell them that they can leave if they want to." I said, "Well, why don't we all leave? <laughs> they got a gas leak. <laughs> it, it's repaired. It's repaired." And I just got to tell them that, and I'm going to tell them it's repaired and there's no really no danger. But I got to tell you, if you guys want to leave, you can leave. Is because that's what they told me. And I said, well, nobody will leave if, 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 there's, if it's repaired and there's no there's zero chance of getting anything happen. They go, yeah. So all of a sudden, you had the eight new recruits and you had the 32 other guys that were sophomores. 32 of them, all the older ones, got up and left. And I go, guys, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you leaving? He just told you that, that there's no chance for anything. That's bad. He goes, coach we can get out of practice. And I go, what? So it really taught me that the head coach knew a little more than me. He had this five-year plan, I had a one-year plan. So it's not exactly that easy to change people's thinking lives just because you got a new way of thinking. Takes a little time. Uh, So that to me really uh, helped me a lot as a coach. But by the, way, by the end of that first year, I was getting a lot of those 32 guys to come my way. But it took some of my freshman youngsters to really show them the extra hard work that they were putting in actually pays off or smart work or that type of thing. So, so it, Coach,
1: just a clarifying question. Sure. Was the head coach new also that year or were you just Yeah, he was
2: a brand new head coach. But only at that college level. So he wasn't
1: responsible for that culture. What's that? So he wasn't responsible for the kind of lackadaisical attitude. Right. You guys are brought in to change the program.
2: Yeah, but it wasn't really that lackadaisical because it was more like everybody else. It's just at the top five, 10 teams, you know, like the other hundred teams they have out there is going to be that lackadaisical. And that's why uh, a good coach, you know, can go about changing things and making that mentality a lot different you know and it took us three years instead of five instead of one we we met right in the middle and we won a national title in three years, but we also had to not just change the attitude we did have to go out and recruit some uh some more talent
0: and uh you know so you need a little bit of both a little bit of both coach, I wanted to ask you about recruiting so when you were talking to your staff and you're deciding which kid to, recruit, to offer a scholarship to at a particular weight class, what aspect of that kid did maybe you have a better eye for than your staff? And was it athletic ability or could you sense who was a hard worker or who really had the desire? What, what was it that made you a better uh, judge of talent?
2: I think at the beginning, it was me and what the kid's attitude was. Of course, you got to look and see uh, that he's not 0 50, you know, but you know, it's like, even if he wasn't the best guy in his second place, you know, there might be reasons to believe that you can take that guy and move him up to a higher level. But uh, after they visited for a weekend, I, they, I would always set him down and visit with him for about an hour before they took off to go home. And I really got a lot out of that one-on-one visit, even though, Um, they had been there the whole weekend and you have to do a little bit more hard work. But again, it's like me as a coach, um, you know, I figured my system was good enough that I could get by with maybe less than the number one athletes out there. But you know what? Your system really needs some of those number one athletes too. And coach, I want to
1: pin you down here though. Um, you're, I think this is something that could be very helpful to people in many walks of life. I want to know in detail what would you listen for during that hour. It just wasn't the kid who was excited. And said, I love wrestling. What kind of cues would you try to identify that said this kid probably has something special, or this kid looks good and is not quite there? You
2: know what? At that time, I really was learning as a coach. But one of the biggest, most important things to me was how much he really wanted to attend that school that university of iowa and so if i had any like second thoughts when he was when he left after after we had that hour talk like i don't know where this guy is and i don't know if he really wants to come here or does he want to go to iowa state or does he want to go to michigan state you know that type of stuff and and so i kind of picked on the guys at the beginning by that i mean I picked on them to, to really be good recruits if they really wanted to come and be a part of that program and be coached under under myself or other coach, Kirtlmeier. So that was beginning at the beginning. But you know what? When going got tough later on sometimes and all of a sudden you're in a battle to win, I, I, I learned to overlook that a little bit, and I started looking at just how good can this guy be? just even away from attitude, just how physical he is or how, how mentally tough he is and how talented he is. And and so I might even have to go for help. And I might have, you know, talk to their parents. I might even have to go for their coach and, and make sure I, I, I found consistencies because, sure, when you go to their kids, when you talk to the kid, you get one aspect and you talk to the parents, you usually get something similar. But then when you go to the coach, you might get something different. So a lot of coaches – and a lot of people might not deep dig dig deep enough and cover all areas to know that if there is any uh, not really holes but any backlashes or any issues and you just don't investigate enough. I always uh, liked them Sherlock Holmes movies back when I was a kid, and uh, you know he 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 pretty much was a scientist as well in figuring out how to get those criminals. So. You know, I, I kind of dug deep and found out a lot more. And then when I got consistencies with answers, then I, I believed them. And that that helped me make up my mind to really who to go after sometimes.
0: Coach, I, I wanted to ask you about one of your wrestlers. So uh, when I was a high school kid, I used to lift weights in the summer at Byer Hall and it, it, on the Iowa state campus and the most impressive physical specimen that I ever saw working out with me. And I kind of got to know him a little bit at the time. He was a really nice guy was a guy called Chris Campbell, who uh, I guess at that time must've been an assistant at Iowa state, but I think he had wrestled for you at Iowa. And I think you once said he was maybe the most talented recruit you ever had at Iowa. Do I have that right? Yeah. I got lucky with him because
2: I wasn't recruiting him and all my head. My athletic director, Bump Elliott, actually called me in. I was running practices. See, that's a good manager. Uh, we're talking about Chris Campbell, so remember that. But what happens is right away when I went to Iowa, within two months of being there in the practice room, the head coach, who was the first-year head coach, came up to me and says, Gable, man, you're better in the practice room than I am you know, and I'm 10 years, 12 years older than you. And I've been a head coach at high schools, you know, and I've been the assistant coach here for a while. And I moved up. He said, but you need to run this practices. You need to run practice. You're better than me. They get, I, they get out of it more. So um, so that was one of the early things I learned. I couldn't believe a guy would wait all his life, become the head coach and then turn it over to the assistant. But, but that's a good skill by the head coach. Knowing who's best at what. So anyway, so Chris Campbell, uh, we weren't recruiting him. My athletic director made me go on a trip to New Jersey to, to speak at an athletic director that knew Bump Elliott that said, hey, I want Gabe Lauder to speak at our uh, spring sports banquet. And I told Bump that I didn't want to go. And he looked at me like, you're going. You know, that's the boss. He's got the – he's got the – And I I didn't like leaving the team, you know. But, you know, Kirtlemyer could run it, but – or Jay Robinson or whoever else we had in there. But but so I went out there, and I – there was this – before the banquet started, there was this guy that gave the invocation, and then all of a sudden, I – it was my turn to speak. I got done with the whole thing and he come up to me afterwards and I saw where he had won the state championships in wrestling. He was 32 and always senior year. And he came up to me, he said, boy, I loved your speech. He said, Chris Campbell did. I didn't know who Chris Campbell was. And he goes, I'd really kind of bit like interested in maybe looking at the university of Iowa. And I said, well, how'd you do as a junior? He goes, um, well, I didn't go out as a junior. And I go, oh, wait a minute how'd you do as a sophomore he goes i went out and then i didn't i didn't i didn't wrestle i i quit after a couple of weeks or something so i said you went out as a senior and that's your first wrestling and you was 32 and 0 and you won the new jersey state championships he goes yeah well anyway so then he we had a tournament in iowa that year a national high school championship in the summer and he came there and he got second in the national high school championships so all of a sudden Even I hadn't really followed up on him, so I went up to him and I said, "You still interested?" He goes, "Yeah." So I said, "Okay, we'll give you a small scholarship." You know, I think I gave him books or something like that. But but he came, and honest God, he hadn't really learned much wrestling yet, and so he got to learn at a higher level than starting out, and he picked it up so easily. And he ended up not only winning two national titles, he was in the national finals his sophomore year, but then he won a world title in 1981, then he went to law school at Cornell University, got his law degree, in 1986 or seven years later, after he got his law degree in practicing, he came back out again to wrestle and got third in the world, and then he went to the Olympics again, or I guess he didn't go. And, and after he that was his first olympics he wanted to go and so and he got a bronze medal or a, and he got a, a a silver medal one of the two and so the guy was amazing he has so much talent and uh you know it's just you, you can't you can't make that kind of stuff
1: up sorry for for coach for and steve sorry to interrupt for those of are us aren't wrestlers can you give us a picture of this guy what's a our, our great wrestler's tall are we are they six two are they five eight uh they can be
2: any size but if you picture somebody that's built like granite and just is flexible can do all yoga can you know it can do all
0: that kind of stuff then you had the perfect wrestler pretty much with chris campbell
2: yeah
0: chris campbell was uh you know he he looked like uh, herschel walker uh, the running back. I mean, he was a little bit shorter, but just incredibly muscular guy, no fat, and uh, just incredible, incredibly had, quick he had, athlete. No,
2: he, he didn't have any um, mistakes. He didn't make any mistakes. He was the only guy that I let not wrestle hard till the end of the match because I knew he was going to win at the end of the match. As soon as he pulled a move off, he was going to win. And if he was in tough matches he was going to win the last match, last 30 seconds. And he really wasn't in a whole lot of tough matches, but there was some guys out there that could could take him to the wire a little bit, but I knew that he was going to win the last, last uh, scramble.
0: I think he might've been on the uh, 80 team that couldn't go to Moscow. Um, And then later, I think he was almost 40 at the time. uh, He, he won the bronze medal at the Olympics as a much older uh, competitor. 88, right? Yeah. But I, I want 92. I wanted to maybe 92. I, I don't even know. could could have been 92. I, mm. I wanted to compare Chris Campbell, who I was astonished to learn much later that he had not wrestled very much by the time he got to Iowa to the kids that I grew up with. I grew up with the Gibbons brothers. I don't know if you know these guys, but of course uh, know. so I, I was with Joe and Jeff Gibbons in high school. And these guys, I think had a wrestling room maybe in their basement. I don't, I don't even remember, but they, these guys seem to know everything about wrestling by the time they were, you know, 12 years old. And so the contrast between their level of preparation, you know, they, they hit 10,000 hours of practice probably before they left high school. And this guy, Chris Campbell had almost, you know, very little, maybe one full year of training before he went to college. So it's just incredible what, sorry, did, did you guys lose me for a while?
1: We yeah. did, actually, yeah.
0: Well, what was the last thing I said? <laughs> about Ames, about Gibbons. I was comparing the Gibbons brothers who I went to high school with, and I thought they might have had a wrestling room in their basement. because They did. by the time they were 12, they had done their 10,000 hours of already training. And this guy, Chris Campbell, had maybe one year of training before he went to college. And so that diversity is just amazing.
2: Yeah, but you got to remember... Everything that Chris Campbell learned was at the highest level. A lot of times, when you're learning as a kid, you might not have the the coaches that are superior. And so, you might learn a lot of bad habits, or you might, and that's maybe that's all they know. And all of a sudden, as you go to a higher level, you make some adjustments, and it takes a while because you've already been accustomed to something that's not quite as good. Chris Campbell never had to make any adjustments because he learned right away uh, that one year, but he had a good high school coach. But as soon as he went to college, he had so much good stuff that he could learn, and it was a lot easier. Whereas, but the Gibbons were all really good technically, too. You know, they're related to Nichols, Dr. Harold Nichols. I don't know if you knew that.
1: Yeah,
0: that's right. I think I knew that.
2: So they got a lot of uh, uh, good stuff. In fact, Jim Gibbons, the older one, I mean, he, uh, you know, he'd sky you. He'd put you in the air. You'd be orbit. You know, he, he had a great uh, lift with his hips and high crotch. And, and they, you know, they did very well.
1: So, Coach, um, I was a runner in high school, and I followed cross-country running and track uh, for a lot of my life. And there's been a huge uh, amount of change in how people train for runner over the years. Uh, back in the 70s, we used to do just long, slow distance, these very long, slow runs. Oh, man. That it turns out yeah. we're just not terribly useful, actually, for running fast, even the 5 or 10K. I'm curious is that what kind of changes there been in the understanding of what's required to become a top wrestler and the training over the decades? Has it been really substantial or has it been pretty static as far as uh, methods?
2: I think when you said long, slow, that's absolutely kind of what wrestling was in his- history back in the forties and thirties and fifties you had matches i think in the olympic games were 15 minutes long five minutes five minutes and five minutes now they're uh two three minute periods uh so you're getting you know you're getting a lot more accomplished quicker the actions more and if you don't have action you're getting called for stalling and that type of stuff so you got more of a product and it's uh you know, I, I actually was a uh, uh, kind of a track and field fan just because back when I was, when my my sister got murdered, uh, a guy came to speak about, oh, a month before she did. Excuse me, about a month. And he had a book that he was selling. It's called The Heart of a Champion by Bob Richards. He was an Olympic uh, pole vault champion. but he was also a minister, and so there was so much that I needed in my life at that point in time. Uh, and it wasn't so much the ministry yet; it was it was there, and it always faiths always great. But he actually talked a lot about track and field and how, like the first guy that ever broke the four minute mile. He explained and Roger Bannister. How, yeah, he, he explained that run. And it made a lot of sense to me, you know it's kind of like you know in running and it, it, when you said when you said slow run i mean that's there's no slow run in in the, when you run the world in Olympic level, so for me, it's like uh, uh there was there was I think there was a great uh runner from Oregon at one time, I can't think of, but he never he did, you know he threw all that pace stuff out the window
1: Steve Prefontaine you' yeah, talking
2: about yeah. So, I love that kind of stuff. I don't want this pace in a wrestling match. You know, and that's kind of what I think early on we had this pace where when we closed up the space and made the rules a little bit better and called stalling and stuff like that, then all of a sudden we had more entertainment and we had more excitement. And even going to practice, I think the coaches just did a lot more, wanted to see a lot more accomplished. And when you accomplish a lot more than you're you're feeling better and you're learning better and you're going to be more enjoyable. Every time I hit a new hold in wrestling, I loved it. Uh, in fact, every time I executed a hold, that was where I got the really good feeling because that's where you score points. And so if you're not, you know, if you're, if you're out there hanging out, you're not learning much. And you know, it's kind of like right now. And again, I'm going back to this because I don't want to hang out here until November. You know, I want, I want, we need some action (laughs) and, you know, we need to get this uh, virus straightened out and we need people working. I know you said they're working hard, but man, can, can we let something beat us? Yeah. You know, there's probably a higher power that's made it complicated, but you know what? We gotta, we gotta work hard as well.
0: You know, Dan, one one thing that's a little disappointing to me in the leadership uh, in fighting this virus is that there isn't more sort of creative or dynamic activity where the government just says, we're just going to pour X million dollars into doing this. And we want to mobilize, you know, 100 scientists to just drop everything and do this, given that there's trillions of dollars at stake every time, every month that we idle the economy, it's like a trillion dollars. So um, the response is not as dynamic as I would have hoped, although I do think many, many scientists are working very hard right now.
2: And I agree totally. And so, you know, wrestling almost got dropped from the Olympics back in 2013. And you know what? That's the first time in the history of the sport that the leaders of all the top nations and the United States actually worked together. And because of that, within six months, we were back in. We never really were out. And it took something like that. That's what it's going to take now. So uh, it's, it's like, it's like, where do you go? Do you actually sit down and decide who are the, the best people in the world or do you just start calling up this guy and calling up that guy? you got to pinpoint who you need and let them work at it, most
0: scientific minds in the world. Yep. Hey, I wanted to ask you another question that, you know, something that I learned in researching for this interview. Um, when I was looking up your record, there was a guy I had never heard of named Yojiro Yutake, who was at uh, Oklahoma State, uh, maybe 10 years before you were a wrestler uh, in college. This guy also went undefeated through three years, and I think he won two Olympic golds for Japan. But he was an Oki State cowboy in the NCAA. Had you ever heard of this guy? Oh, come
2: on. Yeah, for sure. In fact, when I was in the semifinals of the Worlds, when I was in the semifinals of the Olympics, he was in the corner of the Japanese wrestler that I was wrestling, Yutaki became their national coach as well. But I watched Yutaki wrestle and uh, yeah he was he was a little different than me. He was so good that he couldn't lose. It's kind of like Chris Campbell. You know he but he didn't have to put out all that effort. He just had to do it when he wanted to. Remember when I said about Chris? Chris kind of hung in there and hung in then, he, then he, would, he didn't actually put all the effort out because he was so good. Well, Yutake was the same way. He was so good that when the match was 2-2, two to two, he was going to win. And that's the bottom line. In fact, hardly anybody ever scored on him in international competition, a little bit. But, but uh, in, in college, they would because he wouldn't, uh, didn't know how to ride. That was not a skill that you learn in international wrestling. So,
1: so what is this guy's uh, competitive advantage? You said Chris Camp was a phenomenal physical specimen, incredibly muscular and strong. Uh, was it also the same for him?
2: Yeah, pretty much was, yep. He was – and you got to realize Japanese culture is so disciplined that when he was the coach in the corner, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe behind the scenes, one of my athletes back 20 years ago wanted me to get him ready, and the last thing he wanted me to do before, you know, was like crack him across the face or something. And I guess I would oblige, you know. But now they do it themselves because you just really can't – hit some kid <laughs> but but actually i do see some of them do it but but Yutake, he actually cracked you know after the first period when his his kid that was wrestling me wasn't wrestled i heard a big smack and i looked over and he was smacking the guy but the guy needed it and wanted it so but in today's day and age you probably uh, he would have a harder time doing that kind of stuff but he just needed i i gotta remember one thing i got inside people's heads not only as an athlete but also as a coach because there's a certain brutality certain intensity certain uh, thing and aura that when you wrestled gable or when you wrestled one of his guys that it was not just that they were going to beat you they were going to kind of beat you up a little and and it was when you got done it, it was not like you just jumped to your feet and walk off the mat. Yeah, the winner did, which was my guy usually. But the loser, he'd have a hard time getting up because – and, and that stuff wears on you. And, uh, you know, I love it when somebody's beat before they start the match. Now, so I wasn't Coach, Coach, that way.
1: Coach, Coach, was, it, was this part ahead. of your plan? I just want to know, when you started training your team, did you have this as part of an idea that I want that guy to feel defeated and thus for people to realize this about my team? Or is this something you kind of realized – over time, it's kind of a pleasant uh, I, or useful.
2: No, I, I took that because in my own career, most, I mean, I'm, that's probably one of the reasons why I got beats, because I didn't think anybody would step up to try to beat me. <laughs> so, you know, that's and that's a bad way to think about it. But, you know, it, it started as an athlete, and it's, it, it was ingrained in me from, I think, not my dad as much as my dad's friends who had sons that wrestled. And uh, they, uh, this dad was kind of, little over the board but I I didn't have to live with him so it was good for me but his own sons probably had it too much of him but but anyway hey let's talk about um about why I didn't go to Michigan State do you, you know I almost went to Michigan State as an athlete no
0: I, no I'd love to hear
2: I'd love to hear that story yeah so I'm in high school and and uh they um I had a kid that was two years older than me named Dale Anderson and he was a two-time national champ for Michigan State, but he was also, I think, a two-time state champ from same my same high school team. Even though I was a sophomore when I won the states, and he was, you know, already he'd already won as a junior, but he didn't. But he went to the states with me as a senior, and he won it. But he went to Michigan State, and he won two titles up there. But uh, Grady Penninger was the coach, and because of that connection with already one uh, kid from that high school, and I, I was undefeated. He they recruited me, and you know, I was a home guy. You know, I just I wanted to like after what happened to my sister, I didn't want to go anywhere. I wanted to go to UNI, but I knew that I needed to go to the place that could help me the most, Iowa State. So, uh, you know, so it was like uh, I, I was getting recruited, and all of a sudden I kind of chickened out the night before my visit to Michigan State, which I didn't really take any visits outside of the state because I, I'm an Iowa boy, and I wanted to stay there. We had good wrestling and. And because of that, uh, I um, I called up Grady Penninger and 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 told him that that uh, that I was going to cancel my visit. He got mad at me. <laughs> but and they had a great assistant coach named uh, Doug Blueball then, who actually coached me to world title a few years later, in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria. But but he you know he I canceled. And, you know, but here's the thing. Dale Anderson went to Iowa State for a year, didn't like it, transferred to Michigan State, loved it up there, did really well. One of the, you know, I think he was on the first Big Ten team that won a national championship. Michigan State won a national championship in wrestling when he was on that team. And I was on Iowa State's team at the time. But it was just one of these things that – it was kind of be a wasted trip for me because I knew that I wasn't leaving the state of Iowa, and so I was just honest with him. And so, and and they actually ended up having a good one thirty, one thirty seven hundred. When Anderson uh, stayed back, or I re- graduated, and a kid named Keith Lawrence. But I, and I had to wrestle him three or four times. He was one of the great wrestlers, but another really great wrestler was on was on the world team with me. A kid named Don Bean from Michigan State, uh, who was a silver medalist in the Olympics, bronze I think silver medals in the worlds, and I, I respected the heck out of uh, Michigan State. So I follow Michigan State quite a bit actually, and uh, I know that you know you guys had some issues, uh, and I'm I'm pulling for you in a lot of ways, but um, not from the standpoint that that I wish I would have went to Michigan state. I can tell you that just because I knew I <laughs> where I needed to go because my environment and I was a homebody, I could get home in an hour and a half. And it's one of these things that, you know, you need to feel good about what you're doing. I would have took a chance if I would have went to Michigan state, just on whether I'd have been homesick. Cause it took me almost eight or nine months just to feel good when I went to Ames and that's a hundred miles away, even though I've, had some friends on the team, so, but Michigan State has meant a lot to me over the year, and I appreciate you bringing me in, and, and these uh, scientists up there that you guys are working with, and it's all about performance, and hey, if you guys can discover uh, a virus, a killer virus, uh, you know, something to kill that, then I'll, I'll give you a lot of credit up there, but, but I don't care if the University of Iowa does it, whoever does it, let's do it. So.
1: so so, Dan, um, I think we're coming close to the end, but I would want to ask a few questions about how people uh, may benefit from your understanding of training for wrestling, especially in these difficult times when we're all at home. So it struck me the wrestlers are often in, in extremely good condition, and thus, although wrestling isn't a very well-known sport, there are probably some things that people Wait can learn that. about training.
2: It's well-known. It's it's well-known throughout the world, maybe not some parts. Maybe in of- the
1: U.S., yeah. yeah. But as far as training goes, are there things that a regular person can do that are out of the wrestling playbook that you would really recommend? Steve and I are a little obsessed by this because we're getting older, we're looking for things to keep our overall strength up, uh, especially the whole body exercises. So if there's anything you could tell us from the wrestling uh, playbook.
2: I'll tell you, I've never got out of the gym in my whole life. You know, the only time I had to get out of the gym was when I had to recover in the hospital to get a surgery. That science put me back together. And uh, you know, I today, uh, you know, I've I already did my, you know, did some. Well, like, the only thing I've done so far today is actually sauna and hot tub, and shower. But I'm gonna hit hit my hit the gym in the backyard. I got a small cabin in my backyard, and I got a a workout room back there i air dine and i uh, lift weights and i already put a couple of my grandkids through a, a really good workout today uh so because you know they're not can't go to school right now they can't participate in, in in sports they're missing their uh uh i think baseball's next and football but so but wrestling teaches you so many life skills because you really have to you have to make weight classes or you have to gain weight. You have to lose weight or gain weight sometimes to make weight classes. So you gotta understand nutrition and that's a life skill. And the more you understand uh, about that can help you in performance in life. It's just like right now, the people that are getting taken uh, from this virus are you know, mostly the older people, but mostly even more than older people, people that have challenges already with, with their health. So you know, that's something that you wanna, you wanna keep. And wrestling teaches all that because not only for making weight class, but just to be able to make six minutes or make seven minutes or whatever your length. If you go over time, you could go up nine, 10 minutes. You could go a long time and it's at a high pace. So uh, we do a lot of uh, strength training, but you know, you look at the body of who we are and then the coach has to, instead of blanket it, he's got to tell him, tell him what he thinks he needs as far as the skills and the conditioning and strength aspect. Each guy's different. So, but we do a lot of training because it's really hard to wrestle if you wrestle really hard from the second one after about the 430 mark. And all the matches either go at the least the match goes is six minutes. And uh so if if you're out there really going hard, you're gonna affect your opponents when he's at a really good level of conditioning it's still probably only four and a half minutes. So you got to be in super shape. And it's not just cardiovascular, it's muscular as well. And you're also working on flexibility. So you're, work, you're covering everything and food nutrition. There is not a thing that we don't cover uh, that's great for the health. And uh, so that's why, you know, if you have some wrestling background, you can't really keep going at it. I mean, I, I, I have a big... You know, I wrestled till I was 56. I mean, I had artificial hips at 49 and 50, and I still wrestled for another seven years. But then I had to replace my hips because, I mean, that's what you use in, in combat. You use your hips because that's the center of gravity. And so, you know, I, I wore them babies out, and so I had to have another set. And then I had to wore them out, and then I had to have another set. And so they told me they don't want to see me again <laughs> Because you can't really keep replacing science, doesn't do that. But you know what? That was quite a few years ago. I'm up there in ages now, and they said, Come see us again because science is better. I can actually go get us a new set of hips now. But you know what? Because I got smarter, last about a month ago, I checked on my hips, and this I've been three or four or five years with that uh, third set of, um, of, of hips, gotten my real ones, and they said, Oh man, they look perfect. Plus, they're better too Then they put them in. So, you know, you gotta be a little smart. But wrestling, a lot, but it really, really focuses you on detail. On detail. Remember when I said I lost to Owings? I didn't focus on detail at that time of the sport or all the training aspects.
0: Hey, coach, one last question before we let you go. And I, I want to say again, I really appreciate your time. So I know you. Uh, some of your former athletes and I think you yourself got a little interested in mixed martial arts and jujitsu at one time. I think you were even on a show called The Contenders. You did the, the voice uh, over or the color commentary on the show, which was kind of what I would call submission wrestling. Um, what are your thoughts on this other kind of grappling, which has kind of gotten really popular worldwide? Hey, I'm okay for it. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a
2: little, I'm just gonna tell you, as tough as I am. Uh, you know, and I, 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 I have I boxed when I was a kid and they didn't wear helmets then and they had smaller gloves, didn't wear mouthpieces, <laughs> you know, so you got beat up, but, but I mostly did that for training along with my wrestling. But I really think that if you are going to hit somebody in the head, then that's, that's a little tough. That's a little tough. And that's why we don't have boxing in school systems. So, you know, that's why, uh, you know, that's why I got a big bag and I hit that big bag. You know, I'm not in a boxing match with someone. I don't get my head. I don't want to get my head hit again. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's it's one of these things that I think these other sports are okay. But I I do have a little issue with, like, and I think they've stepped in now and they've done a lot of safety things. Like, I I would hate to see somebody get choked out and then – you keep them in a choke for too long because that's not good. (laughs) Or if somebody's hitting the head, you know, I I almost think like they should probably have some kind of device where it doesn't do brain damage, but otherwise I like
0: the wrestling part. I like the wrestling part. How do you feel about a grappling style where instead of the goal being to control somebody and pin them, the goal is to get them to a point where you can apply a choke or apply an arm bar leg lock and and submit them. It's a different, different set of mechanics, but I wonder if you if you had applied your brain at all to think about that. No, I have.
2: And uh, you know, I'm I'm okay with it as long as the referee can step in and not and and prevent something beyond a tap out, you know, or when he's tapping out, you don't know, wait too long. I think I think you don't know, you don't want you don't want to have any damage more than than it is. But you know, I'll tell you what. When I practiced wrestling, I used to have this lightweight throwing dummy with handles. And all I did was foot sweeps, foot sweeps, foot sweeps, foot sweeps. And I'll tell you, it saved me in the semis in the uh, of the world's first time there I was behind, actually. And I caught the Japanese in a foot sweep, an unbelievable foot sweep,
1: well, which coach, I had coach. hit a
2: hundred times, a thousand times before that.
1: Car- but- coach, what's a foot sweep?
2: It's, it's like if i walk up to you i can kick both your feet out underneath you but i only have to kick one foot to kick both of them because i get so much power and so much i got it's a timing move and i can't grab a hold of you. i got to do it off a push or shove or a a, a a a grab a hold of your arm and i can move you and i and i i, I kick you with my foot on, on the back of your uh heel and you fly I catch you t- as you step and I kick it and you fly you fly through the air and actually if a good one I fly underneath you and I'm hanging on to you and but then when we on the way down you land first and I land with all my weight on top of you I pretty much knocked the guy out when I when I uh, I did it because uh, he rolled over to, and, and and again I'm not a guy that likes to be on their back because I'm a wrestler even though there's, you could be, there's a lot of moves from the back, but I'm not going to go there because I'm a wrestler and I don't want to be on your back. That's a match any move. And so when actually, when I, when I foot swept the guy, he flew, I flew, he hit all my way, hit on top of him, not kind of knocked the wind out of him. And, and he, it was almost not really unconscious, but he did roll over for momentum, but then he was so stunned that he just rolled right back over when I barred him and that was it. So, uh, you know, it, it um, You learn some things from some other sports that, you know, like judo, like jiu-jitsu, that can actually contain it. But you really can't take some of those things to the extreme because otherwise they're illegal. And that's why our sport's a good sport for high school, junior high, kids, and even all the way through the Olympics just because they're – the only thing that's going to get hurt is unusual situations, not kind of, Freaky type of uh, chokeouts or anything like that, and that's you know that's just uh, something you probably don't. When you're a kid, you don't want you let your kid go in and get choked out. So,
0: a lot of this, I think, is just familiarity because uh, in Japan for a long time judo was one of the required sports, just like kind of wrestling would be here, and they're just very familiar with it. So when a choke happens or an arm lock, they the, the referee just jumps in really quick before someone gets hurt. Right, exactly,
2: so, yeah. that's what I was talking about too just smartness of, of the sport to make sure that nobody gets really dangerously hurt.
0: So coach, I, I really want to thank you for your time. This is, uh, I'm sure this is going to be a treat for our listeners. And, uh, I just want to you tell think, you that you really think you think, yeah, that think we'll get something out of this. I think I'm so calling. because you're an inspiring figure. I want you to know that the way you lived your life and the things that you've accomplished and the things you've done for other people, your athletes and others just has inspired people all over the world. So I just, hope i'm sure you know that already but uh just thought i would say it again
2: yeah i appreciate that saying all the world because the russians vowed to beat me i mean i i come i mean i get a phone call from putin's office and he's telling me gable um you um i read in the the iowa-based magazines called win magazine that you called one of my vice presidents a mafia guy he says would you not call him a mafia guy anymore (laughs) okay but you know how they act so i said i told him that but i here i am telling you so i'm in danger right now but That's all right.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, I've learned a lot from this conversation, too. It's been really eye-opening.
2: Take care, Dan. All right. See you later.